Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to look at the best news of the last few weeks, a big win for progressives in Chile. It's safe to say that this victory would have been unimaginable just two years ago, that after decades of defeats, guerrilla dictatorship, and then more decades of center-right governance, that the mobilized population could win big, defeating not only the right, but also what we call the so-called center-left, the neoliberal concertacion. We can thank the social protests of October 2019. One of the huge demands that emerged from that massive protest movement of 2019, which seems like, I don't know, a lifetime ago, before the pandemic lockdowns, was for a new constitution to replace the fraudulently approved 1980 Pinochet constitution that cemented the domination of right-wing legislators and an entrenched oligarchy to contain and constrain any attempts to create a less repressive and more equitable society. Pablo Abufom was in the thick of the 2019 protest movement, and he spoke to us about it at that time. And today he returns to explain this progressive win in Chile's elections of May 15th, 16th, and the possible pitfalls that lay ahead. Pablo Abufom is a freelance translator, a political analyst, and activist. He's the editor of Posiciones, which is a Chilean journal, and he's also on the editorial collective of Jacobin for America Latina, where his article, Chile, the Constituent Power of the People Breaks In, rough translation, appears. And I just have to also call attention to Pablo's previous Jacobin article that is really excellent, and that was aptly titled it's not about 30 pesos, it's about 30 years. And today he's joining us to celebrate and analyze the results of this magnificent upset. So, Pablo, welcome back. Hi, Susie. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here again. Yes, thank you. So we left off the last time with the demand that seemingly emerged out of nowhere during that 2019 protest movement, and that was for a constituent assembly, you know, reminiscences of, what, 1917 in Russia in the period after the uh, abdication of the Tsar. Not really that much of a parallel, but not only did that demand appear seemingly out of nowhere from those massive mobilizations, but it was for a new constitution and that the constituent assembly be made up of people not from the political class, but by representatives elected by the people themselves. And that uh, election took place on the weekend of May 15th and 16th. So maybe you could just start by telling our listeners what happened. Well, first of all, a lot of things have happened since the last time we spoke, right? It's been, uh, what, a year and a half. And as you said, the idea that changing the constitution was definitely a part of what uh, radical change means in Chile has been established for a long time now. But then during the protest of uh, 2019, apart from calling Piñera, the president, to quit, which was one of the main demands, I don't know if you can call it a demand, it's more like a, like a calling, was to have a constituent assembly to change the constitution. Because the constitution in Chile is definitely, it's the product of the dictatorship, right? And so people in the left, but also regular people who are not politicized, they know that the constitution that was approved in 1980 
through a completely fraudulent referendum. It's not exactly responsible for the way we live in Chile, but it's definitely related. It's definitely part of a problem, right? So apart from demanding, expanding social rights and a stronger democracy with more participation by the people, the protests were putting the need for a new constitution at the center of the struggle. And that meant a significant political leap in terms of mass consciousness in Chile, right? It meant going from specific immediate needs for the way we live to a political change that's more structural. That's the first thing that we need to bear in mind. And then because of that, during the general strike of November 12th in 2019 also, the government was they received a lot of pressure by the more established political parties in the center-left to change the constitution. And that meant they proposed to change the constitution in a, what they called a constitutional convention, which is an interesting change of name from the <clears throat> constituent assembly. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah, because what they wanted to do is to make sure that this is not exactly a sovereign democratic process, but it's a subjugated derivative political process from the constitutional reform that they approved some weeks later after they signed this agreement in November 15th. So what they call this agreement three days after the general strike, which basically was about to topple down Piñero's government, they decided to call all the political establishment to sign up, you would call a bipartisan Uh, agreement that was called for social peace and a new constitution. What social peace was basically repression and the new constitution was this idea of a constitutional convention. Okay, so let me go from there because that's very good that you explained that, Pablo, that I want to just see if you can capture the kind of scope of the defeat for the Pinochetista right, and not just the Pinochetistas, but also the Concertación, because the coalition that was put together, let's say on the right, was called Chile Vamos. And they had heavy financial advantage. I, I don't know, but it seemed like they had the confidence or arrogance to think that this was not going to be a problem for them. And so the rejection of both Chile Vamos and all of the, let's call it the governing class over these past decades, including the old Concertación. Can you kind of summarize the scope of that? And then we'll go in later to the what the other coalitions were about. Well, The first of all is that it's amazing. It's huge. It's wonderful. They've been losing ground for a long time now. The government, I mean, I don't know if this is accurate, but it's great that we had a right-wing government during the pandemic because they are the one facing the consequences of doing it wrong, right? Like everybody did it wrong, but we got the right-wing government that's going to pay for that, right? Like we did with Trump, exactly. maybe Modi yeah, in that's, India that's, and Bolsonaro in Brazil. Let's hope yeah, the pandemic yeah. does the work that maybe the completes the work that not yeah, everyone exactly. else did. And that's, that's basically because the pandemic exacerbates the social contradictions and the economic crisis everywhere, right? So because of that, because the authoritarian response to the revolt in October, but then also their pro-capitalist response to the pandemic that meant that the right wing in the government was losing ground. And they knew this. And actually, 
they organize the constitutional process in a way that would guarantee for them that they will at least be able to veto radical change, right? And so the political agreement they signed on November 15 basically said everything needs to be approved uh, by a two-thirds majority in the Constitutional Convention. And so the right wing was expecting to get at least a third of the seats so they would veto, they would, they would basically block radical change or at least even more progressive stuff for the new constitution. And so you, you asked me to summarize the, yeah. the dimension of the defeat. They didn't even get that third of the convention. <laughs> they got even less than that. So they expected to lose because they were expecting to have just the third, but they lost even more. And that's that's very interesting because basically changes the political landscape in Chile. This is the extent of last week's election. Well, that takes me to sort of the other side. But first, let's just to underscore the profound rebuke that this election represented of Chile's entire governing project in a way since the end of the dictatorship. And we talked about this before and you just mentioned it now. One of the slogans of that October protest in 2019 was something like neoliberalism began here and it ends here. And this, in a way, I think so encapsulates it. And I I kind of like that this was one of the main slogans or at least the banners that we saw all over those demonstrations. So you've just started to talk about how gigantic this victory was, that the right was so rebuked. And then on the other side, there was the new left coalition that came together called Apruebo Dignidad, or I Approve Dignity, which I think is a, you know, a really wonderful name because it puts dignity at the heart of, of the demands. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about the makeup of a Pueblo Dignidad. And then also you talked a little bit as well about the first step, which was to have this constitutional convention, not constituent assembly. So let's start with a Pueblo Dignidad. Yeah. So also in terms of the slogans and, and banners that were massive during the revolt everywhere, not just in Santiago, the capital, but also in other cities, what's about dignity? I mean, everyone was talking about dignity. One of the main slogans was also Basically, we are going to struggle until dignity becomes an everyday thing, right? Until dignity becomes a habit. And so that means that dignidad, dignity became sort of like a a metaphor for the horizon of struggle. And then again, dignity is not exactly socialism or complete emancipation of the oppressed peoples. It's living with dignity. It's like having at least a good life. Right. It's so, the requirement, though, of yeah, any new yeah. society. Right? Exactly, exactly. But this is also important. And we could lose sight of the extent of the defeat of the working class in Chile in 1973 and again in 1988 with the plebiscite, the referendum that got us out of the dictatorship into the neoliberal transition, is that we are fighting for the bare minimum. This is not a revolution. This is something we talked last time, Susie. We're not in the middle of a social revolution against capitalism and the state. We're basically opening a new political cycle for dignity. And definitely that means a new way of understanding democracy and political relationships. 
But then, okay, let's talk about the Prueba Dignidad, the coalition of the left. The coalition is basically has the Communist Party and the Frente Amplio, which is in itself a coalition of, it's right now, I don't know, they have changed so much since October. Of course, a lot of people left. But then it's Convergencia Social and Revolución Democrática, which are two big, sort of like the biggest parties in the coalition. And Frente Amplio was born in 2014 in the aftermath of huge student mobilization. So it basically represents sort of like the new new left in Chile in the past 10 years. It also no. has more liberal sectors. So, so Frente Amplio is a mix of classical social democratic parties and more liberal groups that came out of the student movement. And so they got together with the Communist Party to basically, it's called Apruebo Dignidad. I approve dignity because it was about the referendum, which invited us to approve or reject the new constitution. That's why they had that name. I was going to ask you later on, but I might as well have you just go into a little bit, you know, to explain, say, the difference between Apruebo Dignidad and the Frente Amplio. And you just did that. So in doing that, you kind of give us a panorama of the Chilean left as it exists or emerged from the years of the Concertación and uh, certainly after the dictatorship, but also after the 2019 protest movement when we saw all these new actors on the stage. And as I forgot to say, you're a member of Solidarity, or Solidaridad, which is an anti-capitalist and feminist movement. And, you know, we've certainly read a lot about the feminist general strike, but something that is new about and so profoundly democratic about the election that just took place is that they insisted on parity, right? Gender parity and representation for indigenous, the original inhabitants of the land that is now called Chile, the Mapuche. And so what's so interesting about that is that it really is, while you say not the battle for socialism, it's in the vanguard of world struggles in this sense, because it's insisting on things that are not necessarily spelled out or part of most on the horizon. So maybe we could go into that a little bit because what a lot of observers are seeing is that this victory is one not just for an entirely new constitution, but one where gender equality, indigenous rights, and democratic participation from below are enshrined from the very beginning because of what the election entails. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, it may well be that the makeup of the Constitutional Convention is going to be the new, sort of like a new parliament, right? A new Congress. And so it may be that the new Constitution has a way to understand political representation in a very similar way to the way the Conventional Constitutional Convention was created. And that meant having gender parity, which is a super interesting thing. And I, I want to talk about that later because it has also its own limitations. And then reserved seats for indigenous peoples, which it's not just the Mapuche, but also other nine groups that were represented. They had reserved seats for them. They were, they were going to have elected officials, elected representatives anyway. So, and that's one thing. But then what really changes the political landscape in Chile is that it's not just about the political coalitions that have existed for a century, like the Communist Party, or more recently, like the Frente Amplio, but also new political forces, especially 
based and completely grounded on social movements like feminism and environmentalist movements. These are the new forces of the Constitutional Convention. These are the more interesting sectors of the left. I mean, at least if you count all the independents, because you could run as an independent or having an independent slate, and independence meant in this case not being part of a political party. You could run as an independent in a slate with, I mean, we saw slates from the social movements, people who were involved in the revolts. And so those groups, if you count all of them, they are more than the former Concertación, the old center left. And that's the most interesting thing right now. I want to go into that, Pablo, a little bit more specifically, because in in your article, you talk about the victory, then the challenges, and then, you know, what's next. And I want to get into all of that. But let's go back just for a second, because I don't think we should leave off from, again, saying that this was such a gigantic rebuke of the status quo and of the Chilean political class. And that it also, I mean, it seems, and I'd like you to talk about this, that it took the political elite by surprise. You said that they began to see the writing on the table, perhaps. But what has been the response by the traditional parties so far? And how much did it catch them by surprise? They're completely desperate. I mean, if, you never know, right? Because they, they have their own private conversations. But just by watching the news, or even some of the leaked audios from their WhatsApp conversations, and they are desperate. They don't know what to do. This definitely took them by surprise. I think the, the, the right wing knew that they were not going to win a lot. But I'm not sure that the center left, who had governed the country before the right wing for almost 30 years, I don't think they knew that they were going to lose this badly. And this is why, actually, a couple of days ago, they were supposed to decide, because they are running for primaries for the opposition, for presidential candidates. We have a presidential election in November. And that's also very important because it's definitely, it, it's going to change now, right? And they had to register candidates for the presidential primaries and they wanted to have like a opposition unity and that was not possible, right? And so r- right now we only have Daniel Jadwe from the Communist Party and Gabriel Boric from Frente Amplio running as candidates for sort of like a left-wing or left parties primaries, and then the right wing. They are the only ones who are going to have their primaries. And so it's definitely, I mean, it's it's a defeat for the central left as well as the right, definitely. And also the government, just one thing. Piñera that same night was saying on the radio and, and, and TV that this was a message for the political class that they were not really listening to the demands of the people. And it's like, dude... You've had like yeah, a couple he, of years to figure that out, right? And he said is- that after October too of 2019, didn't he? He said, oh, okay, so, right, we need, you know, we'll have a constitutional convention. It seemed right. like he was listening so-called at that point. Right. I mean, but, but at that point, he was also saying we are at war with a dangerous enemy, which are basically regular folks protesting in the streets. So it's, well, you know, the right wing. But okay, so given all of that, you said not only is this a gigantic defeat, but it changes the political landscape. And it does so now, and I'm glad you brought this to our attention, as they're building up for a November 
presidential election. But the other thing that happened in these elections in the middle of May was that mayors and governors were also elected. Could you say just a little bit what happened there? And was that also as much of an upset as we saw with the people who were elected as representatives for the Constitutional Convention? Yeah, it was also a defeat for the right wing, definitely. They lost some places that were very representative of the past 20 or 30 years of right wing local governments, like Santiago. You know, Santiago is like a big metropolitan area and you have a central municipality that is Santiago Centro. I live here and we, we've we had right wing mayors for, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years now. And now our mayor is a communist woman, right? That's crazy. It's like, when I say that the political landscape is changing, I'm talking about that kind of like daily stuff, but then also deeper stuff like the Frente Amplio and the Communist Party and other sectors in the left, they are calling for independence to be able to run in their own independent slates for presidential elections and for parliamentary elections, because we also have them in November. It it seems that Chile is in love with having mega elections with a lot of officials elected at the same time. So for the right, it was a defeat on the local level. For the center-left, it was more or less the same. They kept most of their cities. But then it was also uh, the left moved forward with independent mayors with communist mayors like in Santiago and then also Frente Amplio. This is all incredible. So, Pablo, from the other side of it, you know, we've just talked about this, that Chile was a kind of world vanguard in the explosion and the massive demonstrations of October 2019 against inequality and against austerity, against price rises and against neoliberalism. And so is this uh, the results of this election signal another vanguard role for Chile in terms of participation? I want to go into a little bit more about the gender parity, the representation for indigenous peoples or the population, LGBTQ rights and other things, especially in Chile, a Catholic country where divorce wasn't even allowed until much, much later, much less the question of abortion and, and everything else. So could you talk a little bit about that and then... After that, I want to go into what kinds of alliances exist on the left and do you see coming in. So go ahead on that one. So first thing to have in mind in terms of participation right now is that there are thousands of people who are still in jail because of participating in the protests, right? So we are in a moment in Chile that we have, again, I mean, we've always had, but we have, again, a lot of political prisoners, and the, of course, the government is denying that they are political prisoners. They basically call them criminals. Some sectors of the center left or the center establishment, they also don't think that they are political prisoners. So we only have their relatives, friends, comrades, and social movements calling for liberation and amnesty, general amnesty for the people in jail. And this is going to be a very important point in the next days or weeks because there are groups that were elected for the conventional constitutional convention that are saying that they won't start working on the constitution before people are free from prison. That's one thing to mention. And also because it means that the excitement has to be combined with being aware of that also. You talked about the kinds of alliances that could come about during this 
period, because the Constitutional Convention is going to go on for a couple of years. So what kinds of alliances were you seeing? And maybe go ahead and finish your point. I was going to say that in terms of gender parity, which is very interesting, it also has its own limitations because in this case, because it basically meant two things. It meant that the slates for the election had to be 50%, 50% male and female. And then the election, once it happened, it's it was going to correct in order to have 50-50 representation. In this case, more women were originally elected. And then the gender parity correction meant that <laughs> men were corrected into the convention, right? So yeah, I it, think it was like 53% women in the and, first, and so yeah, that's but, too much. Yeah, and then they decided that, I mean, the, it, it's the system, right? So in this case, it meant that it's the same amount. It's Right now it's 78 men and 77 women, but out of the 16 people who got into the convention because of this gender parity correction, only five were women and 11 were men. So this is a a very brutal limitation. And so in terms of alliances, as I said in my my article, it's going to be published in Jacobin USA. Uh, It's already in Spanish in Jacobin Latin America. If you take the government forces and opposition forces, you find that, uh, I mean, if that is your axis in order to divide the seats in the convention, you have a huge majority for the opposition. I don't know, it's like 78% or something like that. But then the opposition is several oppositions, actually, because you have the neoliberal left, and then you have the actual left, the Communist Party, and the Frente Amplio, which is somewhere between the left and the more social democratic liberal left. But then you also have the uh, social movements and independents and people who are not in the old parties or even in the new parties. And so... I would say that the most advantageous alliance possible right now, uh, that is, uh, it would be a majority, is all the independence from the indigenous people, the social movements, and also the left parties. They make up uh, 50% of the convention. So they would be able, for instance, they would be able to choose who is going to preside over the, the president and the vice president of the convention If they ally and they work for that, they would be able to choose that without having to uh, negotiate with the right wing, but also without the center left. And that's very interesting because people now are saying that they should have as president for the convention a Mapuche woman called Francisca Linconao. She's a Machi, which is an indigenous uh, religious political authority. And she was in jail. unjustly imprisoned by the state. And she's been the face of Mapuche resistance, again, capitalist colonial state in Chile. And so it would be a very interesting thing to have her as the president of the convention, right? I I would love to see the faces of the fascist right-wingers in the convention (laughs) when when that happens. Oh, me too. So this is really interesting. And it Thinking about this in terms of the various alliances that came together in this coalition of Pruebo Dignidad and the political landscape that you've described that has really been shaken to its core, do you see this coalition staying together 
maybe with that name or with a new one in terms of the elections to come, not just in the constitutional convention? And then has this caused a kind of scrambling of the more traditional, let's say, the old Socialist Party? I don't know if you've mentioned the Communist Party is in it, you know, and that there's a Communist Party mayor. So I guess the real question then is, it's a question about whether or not it's a durable coalition or or if you see kinds of possible fragmentation ahead. It's a very good question and, and a tough yeah, one. Yeah, it's a big one. Because fragmentation is the nature, it's been the nature of social movements and political landscape in Chile for a long time. And it seems that the revolt and then working to get people elected to the convention in spite of the agreement, in spite of the intentions of the regime, because, I mean, most of the people who were elected were not for that agreement. They were against having this restricted convention, right? They wanted a, an actual sovereign constituent assembly. So this all helped to sort of articulate a new anti-neoliberal political space. I don't think we're at the point in time that we can say that it's going to last Because you know that elections, they make people compete, right? And this is what happened. You had people from the feminist movement and the environmentalist movement and the and the organized left and other and in unions competing against each other for the election, right? And that always sort of like makes relations rough and people are sort of like hurt by that. And it's going to happen again, right? Because, I mean, the Frente Amplio and the Communist Party they're going to they want to have their own candidates winning the primaries so you can never count on elections to unite people <laughs> it tends to separate <laughs> people a lot of times but the thing is that we're in a political process that is definitely going beyond elections and this is where the place where independent social movements and especially the feminist and the environmentalist movement are going to be very important for that because they represent not just the program for a new society, right? If the feminism in Chile has been developed a lot in the past 10 years, especially since 2018, and then the general strike was massive, the most massive demonstration since the dictatorship were organized by the Coordinadora Feminista 8 de Marzo, the, the March 8th feminist coordinator. And so they not only represent the horizon for a new society and eco-socialist, anti-capitalist and feminist society, but they also embody the actual force that can make the change. And this is different from the political parties, which all of them are being questioned by the people. This election was definitely some sort of like reproach and attention call, a warning for the political parties of, of all sectors. One thing that I see as a possible problem, you know, after the victory of popular unity, Chile faced a very divided society. And it was always a question about, you know, how much the majority could win to stay in power during those three years of that process. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the turnout for this election. And granted, it was during a pandemic lockdown, and so a lot of people probably couldn't get to the polls. But did they have mail-in votes? You know, I mean, this is a big discussion here in the United States. But I wonder, you know, because this is a little bit disquieting that the turnout was um, 
what, like 48% or something like that? It 43, wasn't 43, as 43%. Okay, thank you. So maybe you could just talk about that as a, perhaps a signal that might embolden the right or, you know, how do you see it? Yeah, political turnout, I mean, has been going down since 1989. Uh, 1988, we had the referendum. And... It's, I mean, there was a small change some years ago, but then again, it's going down. And, and this election, less people came to vote than for the referendum last year to actually approve the new constitution. But as you said, it was, I mean, we were also in the pandemic last year. It was a, a better moment. We were just getting out of a second wave here in Chile. I think it's, I mean, considering how illegitimate the political system is in Chile, it's not no surprise that people are not going to vote, right? I was at an election uh, site working for one of the social movements campaigns and the people who were working there, supervising the votes and all that, regular citizens who are called to work for the elections and ensure they are transparent, they were all mad at people who were not coming to vote. They were saying, well, you all did this and the revolt and all that, and now you're not coming to vote. People were sort of like not really happy about the low turnout. But the interesting thing is that even with a lower turnout, the win was for the left and the social movement. This is interesting because in the past, lower turnouts meant the right wing wins, right? That's what happens everywhere. That's why uh, Republicans in the U.S. are going for restricting voting laws, right? We don't have mailing votes. You have to go to a voting place to vote. There's no mailing vote. There's no voting in advance. You don't have that. Um, Yeah, early voting. Exactly. Yeah. So that means that you can count the people who are actually mobilizing for that. One also another phenomenon that we haven't talked about, but it's interesting is that one of the groups that sort of like reunited all the in the in, a lot of independent candidates coming from the struggles in the street, but also social movements. It's called Lista del Pueblo, the People's List, and this is interesting because I think a lot of people voted for them because they saw the the national campaign on television, but I think a lot of people voted for them just because of the name, because what happened in October was that as some people have said, it's this is not my quote we became a people again, right? Nos volvimos a llamar pueblo. We are again a people. And that's very exciting. It also has its own risks that you never know what a people wants. It's so diverse. It's so different. So you actually need some sort of like political organization trying to mediate between immediate interests in the streets and the revolt and all that, that it's more likely want to just change things and people who are organized promoting specific ways to change things in a specific program, right? Well, I want to ask you, coming out of that, because what we've seen, you know, let's say if we go back to the revolts of 2011, you know, starting with the Arab Spring and going into Occupy, and then, you know, first you saw the occupation of the squares and massive movements that were pretty much ignored, and then it moved into an electoral phase with Syriza in Greece and... In, and um, Podemos in Spain. Yeah, Podemos, thank you, in Spain. And in both cases, it turned out pretty badly. I'm not asking if that's what you see in Chile, but I do see one thing that I'd like to ask you what you think in terms of a two-year period for writing this constitution. That's one, actually. Oh, it's one. One Okay. One year, yeah. 
All right. So that during this period, I guess the question is how you'll keep up the momentum so that there isn't complacency and quiescence while people are are getting on with the operating of the convention and, and coming up with the Constitution. So it's really about what is the role of the broader social movements while this is going on to maintain the sort of progressive nature of the proceedings. I mean, I, I totally agree. The the social movements are the only guarantee that there's no that kind of complacency that we saw in Podemos. I'm not going to talk about Syriza because that's a, it's 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 Greek tragedy, right? Right, right. Like, literally. But in the case of it, it seems that we're getting late to that, right? To that same wave of having a huge, uh, massive mobilization. Some people thought that we had that in 2011 with the student movement, but that was not exactly the same as 15M in Spain and or the Arab Spring, because yeah. all we had after that was Bachelet again, the neoliberal socialist party and some sort of like middle ground free education. But now it's different. Now we're seeing that the chances of a leftist, populist, progressive government are closer than ever. And for me, I don't know, it's it's terrible. It's very, it's very stressful because you don't have the basis, you don't have in Chile, you don't have the economic basis and you don't have the political, social strength to resist, to defend a project like that. That's my impression. I'm a pessimist about our leftist government in Chile right now. I think, I hope it happens. I hope that Jadwe, probably Jadwe, becomes the presidential candidate. I think it's a very interesting moment. But I don't think that we're in the context, the regional context in Latin America, to resist an imperial offensive against a small country with a communist president. Again, I don't think this is the popular unity all over again. I don't think it's the same scenario. We're not there. I think that maybe we're even worse because we have fascism in the air. We have right-wing forces that weren't there in the 60s. So there's a lot of contradictions, but my hope really is the feminist movement and the social movements that have been organizing for the past 30, 40 years in Chile. I mean, my view is that government, a left-wing or progressive government, is going to be a defensive position for the vanguard that is going to be the social movements and the, the working class organized outside the government. The government is going to be able to defend us from foreign intervention and maybe, of course, do some kind of economic redistribution of wealth, which we needed desperately because people are starting to die, not just of the pandemic, but also of other diseases that were eradicated before. So we definitely need a social democratic, merely redistributive uh, economic policy. But it's not enough for the challenge in Latin America. It's definitely not enough. Pablo from that is so good. I just want to inject my own note of optimism here to counter, I guess, or just add to your note of pessimism. And that is that, you know, I said that Chile was the harbinger of the future, or at least the slogans there where you said neoliberalism begins here and ends here. One thing that came out of 
the massive worldwide protests of 2019 was a recognition that neoliberalism had failed. Now, by implication, it also means capitalism has failed, but they'll never go that far to say that. On the other hand, I'm always heartened by the kinds of slogans, and you brought it up in your article that will be in Jacobin, about the economic regime you said that existed before and then the feminist general strike and the forces that were promoting, and it's a quote, socialism and so much more. And so, you know, and I think that also begins with that profound statement that, you know, we approve dignity, that dignity, you know, has to be the basis of it. So and just in this long sort of note of optimism, you see it in the U.S. too. Biden was a centrist. And here he is governing like, you know, so far proposing solutions that are social democratic in nature and Keynesian and redistributive because they recognize, I think, the challenge that came out before the pandemic and then the right wing response is just too dangerous to maintain the status quo. I'm not giving saying this from the top down, but I think the winds are with the left and not with the right at this point. And I hope that, uh, that, that you... I agree. I mean, totally. I mean, I'm not saying that we're not moving forward in a way. I, I, I'm saying I'm not saying that we we shouldn't expect or hope for a progressive government right now in Chile. I'm just saying that, I mean, we need to go there probably, right? And that's so much better than what we've had in the past 20, 30 years. My concern is that the idea that neoliberalism can be born and, and die in one country is the same problem with socialism in one country, right? Is that it's not a national thing. It's an international, it's not just an international thing. It's just capitalism, you know? Neoliberalism yeah. is a nice way to say capitalism since the 80s. And it's not even just, that nice. <laughs> Yeah, no, but I mean, I mean, if you say capitalism in, in the press, capitalists, you, they all think that you're a communist. But if you say neoliberalism, it's just like a way to manage society and all that. And some people even claim it for themselves. So my, my concern is that a left-wing alliance of the Frente Amplio and the Communist Party and whoever joins that is going to run under the illusion that you can end neoliberalism in one country. That it's just a thing of changing public policy and making statements from the positions of government. And so much more than that. I don't think that we can overcome neoliberal capitalism without changing the extractive policies of uh, copper mining and forestry extraction and industrial agriculture and all that. We can't. And that's not going to happen on a national level. I mean, even if in Chile you wanted to make the mining companies go away and then just nationalize everything, you won't have enough capital to run the country. And so we need to think, and this is my, maybe this is where my optimism lies. We need to think in international terms. We need to think in Latin American and international world terms, because that's our hope. Our hope is not in national governments. Our hope is in a regional coalition of peoples struggling. So the government is just a step and probably we need it. I'm sorry that we need it because it brings a lot of problems. I would hope for an immediate instantaneous international revolution, but we need government at some place. But the, the actual force that is going to make change in Latin America is an international coalition of peoples. And, and that's where indigenous peoples and environmental movements and the feminist movement, especially the feminist movement, has a very particular role. 
I can't thank you enough for that. And I also want to just register my total agreement on everything that you just said about the international character of this struggle ahead. But also, I guess I'll just reiterate one more time that in some ways, Chile is the vanguard because it's showing a way forward. Process begins somewhere. Let's hope that it spreads internationally. And Pablo, thank you so much for taking the time today on Jacobin Radio. It has been an utter pleasure to talk to you, as always. And I should just let the listeners know that your article is in Jacobin, and it's also right now in Jacobin American Latino, and that you're also a member of Solidaridad, feminist socialist movement, and a translator and editor of Posiciones, and probably so much more. Just thanks for joining us today on Jacobin. Thanks, Susie. Yeah, great to be here.